If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm Chris Bates. We're on the mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast and um, got a special guest in today. We're going to do an episode on tax and um, mistakes you can make, opportunities. Uh, opportunities. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting episode. We've got George Maurice um, uh, Morris, I mean, from uh, Prime Partners um, in Sydney. Uh, and we're just going to have a really good chat. There's lots to know on, on the tax and, and things you can avoid. There's a lot of myths out there, I find. Um, and so, George, I mean, let's just start at the, the top. And thanks for joining us. Um, we're sort of first home buyers in, um, you know, capital gains tax and investing. You know, what, what sort of, I guess, some of the things first home buyers should be thinking around their property moves and tax? Yeah, morning, Chris. Um, thanks for having me on. Uh, look, capital gains tax is, is first home buyers, they're not going to be exempt, obviously. They're buying in now. Um, so, the first thing to think about, really simple, is keep if you hold a property for a year, that your end tax goes down by 50%. Mm. You know, there, is a, there is a discount if you hold it for more than a year. So look, with property, it's the same for shares, but with property, very rarely will you ever sell it within a year, but just a, just a thing to think about if you're looking to transact quite quickly, um, holding it for over a year is really, really important. That's, I mean, that's an interesting one because, um, I mean, it's unlikely. I mean, CoreLogic have come out this week and said there's been a lot of property selling with under three yeah. years. Um, and, you know, that does make sense a little bit that 2020... 2021, the boom, maybe they're taking money off the table or, you know, they're really stretched financially and they're having to get out. And, um, you know, if they are some investors, I mean, if they're losing money, I guess it doesn't matter. But if there is some some gain, sometimes, is that on the settlement date, just out of curiosity? Or uh, contract happening? date. Contract date. So the date, site, 
the contract date that you buy and then the contract date that you sell. Is that right? Yeah, yeah cool. So that, obviously that's if the first home buyers, you know, buy an investment property, beware that if you do buy an investment, try to sell it after 12 months. But, you know, if, in terms of um, things like um, avoiding uh, and rent vesting, you know, have you thought about, uh, you know, do you get many clients wanting to potentially live in a property and then move out of it for something called the six-year rule? Could you explain that to us? Yeah, um, the six-year rule. Um, really interesting thing about that, and you are talking about myths before. Everybody quotes, got to live in there for six months or got to live in there for 12 months. The legislation says nothing about time period. It says about intention. Mm. Okay. Now, look, the ATO general guidance, you want to have shown intention to live there. And if you move in for a day and move out, you're not really showing intention. Mm. But if you have lived in a property and you decide to rent it, from that date after moving forward, the next six years, even though you're renting it and you're able to claim the income and expenses in your personal tax return, then you cannot pay capital gains tax for that period. Now, once you go over that period, anything moving forward after that, yes, there's capital gains tax period. But if you move back in for a year or so, so quite often people might have gone overseas or something, you move back to Australia, you live in it for a year, that re-triggers the six years. And that that's a lot of people miss out on that one. They go, I can do it for six years, but actually you can do it on a rolling basis. You can move back in, move back out, and it refreshes that six years. Yeah, so I guess um, the key thing uh, sometimes uh first home buyers they they go oh well i might just rent it out for for a little bit first i'll keep living with my parents i'll keep renting my flat share and then i'll move into it in a year or two when i can afford the mortgage a bit more but you know that makes them ineligible for this six-year rule doesn't it does and if the property price goes up significantly in that period before they move in then it's going to have a negative effect long term when they do sell it um interesting thing that people sort of don't assess very often i've done up some financial models on it is are you actually best to move in or not? Um, there is there is a starting of a wave of people who move in, yes, at the start, move out and rent um, with the intention of renting and actually holding this property as an investment. And from a cash flow point of view and a long-term wealth point of view, they're actually better renting than living in the house they own. Um, mm. Now, that's not every scenario, but quite, a, quite often, especially with interest rates going up now, the ability to be able to make that interest rate deductible, claim negative gearing, makes a huge impact on the long-term wealth. It's really good. It's a really good point, right? So you, you think about someone with a bigger mortgage, right, yeah. that maybe has a bit of flexibility with renting. There's you know, maybe they're a couple or um, even with families, you know, they might say, well, we don't need this big house right now because we've got you know young kids. We're happy yeah. to rent, rent something a bit cheaper like an apartment. Um, our mortgage is crippling us a bit. Um, yeah. Maybe we're better off to move into a cheaper rental accommodation. Um that will reduce our, our costs dramatically and then that makes our mortgage tax deductible for potentially up to six years. And, um, yeah, and all the expenses of that house. So when you actually do out a model and look at it, quite often the, the tax savings are huge mm. by doing that and, and your overall wealth. You're still, you're still getting the capital gain on that property. You're still generating long-term wealth for yourself, but maybe you're just not living in it now. Yeah, and I think under higher in- under low interest rates, that uh, costs the benefits, you know, yeah. 2 or 3% interest rates, maybe it's, just as cheap to live in your property, it right? Is, yeah. But when rates are getting in the sixes and you know and above, or even the fives and above, right? The, yeah. That you can do the numbers on this and the modeling. What George is sort of suggesting here is makes good sense, and um, we've suggested this to clients who are struggling a little bit with their mortgage. Could they, you know, take it on the chin a little bit? Maybe I don't need this house right now. Maybe I'm happy to move out and rent it. But and, and knuckle, instead of selling, yeah. maybe we can just you know stay in the market not have to avoid paying stamp duty and selling costs in the future and the market running on us. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. 
And, and the other thing you find really interesting in there is the same discussion happens when they're looking to buy an additional house. Um, so, so I've done sort of models with people before where they go, can we afford this house? I think I'm going to have to sell. So quite often I've got a unit. I want to buy a house. The only way we can afford it is actually to sell the unit. And, and the end result is actually if you keep the unit, buy the house but don't live in it now, is more affordable than selling the unit and buying the house. Mm, you know? That's an interesting. So, yeah, because they could potentially use, assuming they could borrow the money, I guess, that's that's a yeah. bit of a challenge in this market because borrowing um, is only maybe four, four and a half times your income, you know, versus seven times your yeah. income. So it's harder to buy assets and keep assets. But but the other know, side of that, Chris, yeah. sorry, that you off is you're getting two lots of income because you're renting both properties. Oh, I see what you're saying. So you're not just living in the apartment. Then you go and rent a house that suits you right now yeah. that's cheaper. Yeah. yeah, which is a very unusual thing. I don't think many people really think about it in that way. Mm. But, you know, I, I'm a huge numbers nerd, right? So I do yeah. the numbers on it. And suddenly that makes sense and you can give a sort of a second or a third option. Now, people may still just want to sell the unit and buy the house, but having another option is always really powerful. Yeah, there was a client just in the last six months who wasn't a client of ours but came to us um, who was under a bit of you know debt stress, I guess, um, and you know it was down in Geelong Way um, in Victoria, and they ended up moving out of their house. That's the option we we sort of said we can't yeah. refinance you. We negotiate a better rate. They weren't they'd gone to another broker in the past, and um, yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think people should explore, you know, potentially uh, you know renting if it means holding assets or even just from a short term play. What about repairs and? Um, you know, if you have renoed the place, is there a bit of a benefit here as well with depreciation or? Yep. So, so, so we'll separate out the repairs and the renovation because yep. quite often that's sort of a tricky point um, for people. So, so repairs are your small things you're doing around the house. That's instantly deductible in your tax return. Um, so that'll be offset against any income, rental income. And if you end up in a lost position, which is what people call negative gearing, that can be offset against your um, other income. Now, Renovations, I guess we'll link quickly in. I'm not sure if you've talked before about, you know, getting depreciation reports and things done up. No, okay. no, no. We can talk a little bit about it. Okay. First thing I ever do when a new client comes on with the property is call a quantity surveyor and see if it's worthwhile, which they'll charge you nothing for an assessment. See if it's worthwhile getting a depreciation report done up. That will then allow you to claim the building itself plus the assets in there, a percentage of them every year as a deduction um, and it's this sort of Goldilocks deduction because you don't pay cash for it. Mm. You know, you get a deduction in your tax return like if you'd pay cash, but you don't. It's just actually depreciation value of that building and those assets. So incredibly powerful tool to help reduce your tax, um, which obviously gives you more free cash flow. So a renovation is something that could be done in that way. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I remember a client shared quite a lot of properties and she never had a depreciation report um, and mm. I see it quite a bit all the time maybe, maybe cost you five six hundred bucks right not much um, yeah. and you know every property it means appreciation benefits have been watered down a little bit from my understanding over the years like um, it has and but you still doesn't need much to be able to claim to get you six hundred dollars back no um, and that six hundred dollars is also tax deductible yeah. so that's for, for those playing along at home the six hundred dollars is roughly what it'll cost you to get the report done yeah, exactly. So I think that's a, that's an interesting conversation. And the six-year rule, um, we've got a client at the moment, um, this is not going to be relevant for all our listeners, but um, you know, they have lived in at the start, but they've moved out. And they. a lot of people believe that if they didn't move back in within the six-year, then it's not deductible for the whole time. 
that's not true, right? Like if you moved out of it, um, you know, in 2015, uh, you bought it in 2015, you lived there for three or four years and then you moved out of it um, after six years, like is did, what's the how did the, the ATO figure out where the gain starts? Is it just literally what it would have been worth when you moved out and they do a bit of a rough calc what it was worth back then? Um, um, I, I won't go too technical on this because there's multiple answers. Um, right. Because depending on whether you lived in it first, whether you rented it out, lived in it, then rented it out, there's actually different methods to calculating it out. Yeah, okay. But the overarching theory on it is, is that six years is exempt. Yeah. You know, we, we, we have different ways of calculating exactly how that is exempt based on a history, but that six years is exempt. You can you can live out for another 15 years, that six years is exempt, and it can be an apportionment or a getting a value or in depending on the method. Yeah, okay, cool. So you can do it based on a evaluation sort of rough measure on what it would have been worth when you moved out rather um, than if a you just moved in first if you moved before in ever renting it then yes that's the method you use yeah. you get a valuation at the date you moved out um, yeah and that resets the cost base at that point yeah and i think that's a it's uh sometimes people you know they say well i lived in it for three years and i rented it out for six years and so i don't know i should pay tax on two-thirds of it or something right they yeah, no. they don't and they don't look at it and then for what matters is the growth of um it was actually happening over the time frame, right? And so potentially yeah. when you moved out, actually it was a higher value than what it's worth today. And so you don't pay much capital gains tax. And so yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one for people to think through. But the six years rule is definitely something we've seen a lot of first home buyers use. And you made some really valid points with with homeowners who may want to use it just from a cash flow benefit. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, obviously there's other reasons that people are moving into state and things like that. Um, yeah. What are some other sort of, Tax mistakes you sort of see, mate. I mean, people bring up some amazing, you know, uh, structures in property mm -hmm. to, to mm -hmm. help people to build portfolios out and things like that. What's your sort of take on whether you should be buying personal names or trusts or, yep. or company um, structures? I'll probably offend people here a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, people overcomplicate it for their own gain. Yeah. You know, like I have clients come in with complex structures and I have to unwind them because it's actually not giving them any benefit and it's just making me richer, mm. right? Um, and, and there's people pushing these sort of products. Now, there is certain scenarios where I'll bring a structure in, but keep it simple. At first, keep it simple. The key things you've got to think about are actually risk. So if there is a key person involved that is at risk, so a doctor, um, someone who runs their own business, those sorts of things, potentially that property shouldn't be in their name you know um so that might be in a spouse's name or then you know depending on the state potentially a trust and i won't get into why a state new south wales is not great mm. um so so there's that that's a key thing when you're looking at those sort of structure things um but company trust things there is downsides um and until you have more property they quite often are not relevant um and the other one i guess a lot of people do is self-managed super funds mm. yeah so i think the, the takeaway here is that um for most people, unless there's a real key risk, maybe with your business or you're yeah. going to get sued, I guess, um, yeah. uh, you know, potentially throwing a property in a trust or property in a company might be great for the accountant in terms of charging more fees. But yeah. do you really get value out of that complexity? Because the downsides can be things like, you know, writing off losses might not be possible. There could be, yeah. you know, potentially uh, no capital gains tax exemptions, company yeah. tax rates, and those sort of things. Those can dwarf the the benefits of 100 percent, yeah 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 you can you can have massive problems with it and, you know it, it's in people's interest to to spruce these things up you know make them look a little bit better than they are um whereas you know simplicity can win 
there's so many other things you can do that are probably more beneficial, um, especially when you're first or second property. Um, once you get to three and four and things, then structures do start to become relevant um, because all the benefits you get by holding them individually start to dissipate away. Um, so you may as well get the flexibility of some of these other options. Awesome. Um, so Airbnb is a hot topic. Um, Dan Andrews came out this week and threw a, uh, before yeah. he left, um, threw a 7.5% tax on Airbnb owners, yeah. um, a parting gift you might call it. But, um, yeah. I mean, we, we've seen this a little bit as well. Some people, are, you know, they've got a house but they want to go to Europe or they and they want to just Airbnb their house for mm. four or five weeks um, yeah. and then they do it every school holidays, et cetera, and they're airbnb their home. And, you know, can you explain some of the, the challenges from a tax point of view that that could create that they might not be aware of? Yeah, so obviously there's an administration part just to start off with, you know, actually figuring out what percentage is claimable. You know, you get taxed on the income, so you've got to figure out all the expenses. Uh, um, are you renting out part of your home? Are you renting out the full part of your home? Mm. It's going to be different. Um, to get in the really technical side, there's actually a question. The first question you ask is, is this house pre-capital gains tax? Uh, because if it is, even though you're renting it out, doing income-producing things, no capital gains tax implications. Mm. So that's right. if 1986, isn't it? From that memory? is. So yeah. we've got two key dates here. Um, that's 1986. Then we have, so let's say that was 20th September 1986. And then there's another one, which is 20th of August 96. Right. Um, which is another one because basically if you started renting your home out at all before that, there's a different rule. Now, because most of the people listening are probably not in that situation. I'll, I'll leave that one out. Um, but the main thing we're talking about here is the capital gains tax implication of renting your place out. Mm. Now, post that 96 date, um, if you went and, you know, got got a rental property, uh, got, got that airbnb out, sorry, um, you potentially are going to have a capital gains tax implication on your main residence, mm. okay, which, which you've really got to weigh up and a lot of people don't. Um, before they have been made out, you go, okay, well, if I do this for a period, what's that going to look like? Um, and it becomes like with, with the situation you're talking about, it becomes a day's calculation. So I've hold, held the property for 1,478 days and of that 48 days of it were rented out, then I actually have to adjust my capital gains tax by that. Um, yeah. So if you're just doing it once a year, you know, probably not a big deal. It's not going to have a huge implication, um, especially if you've got a really nice home that can get you a good amount over the Christmas period or whenever it is. Mm. Um, if you're doing it more regularly, um, then then there's you've got to ask yourself, am I doing it the whole house or am I doing it a portion of the house? So there's actually two different ways that's taxed as well. Mm. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people just go, oh, I'll just throw it on Airbnb. I'll just rent out yeah. my granny flat or my studio. And yeah. that's the same sort of challenge, right? It's a, yeah. it's income on an asset that's growing tax-free for you. And um, yeah. not years down the line, they sell their home and yeah. they go, uh-oh, I, I thought it was tax-free. Yeah. But we've actually got this capital gains tax bill on our home, which when you look at the, the tax costs there, um, the yeah. problem with, I think, with Airbnb income, people don't think it's taxable, right, even. They... And yep. they put their bank it, they spend it, they spend it on their mm -hmm. holidays, and then they got to give, you know, they don't get as much back in their tax refund because they had to pay tax on their Airbnb income. Yeah. So there is potentially some people who have better potentially um, getting some money in your pocket if you need it to Very cover your mortgages so. and having to, versus selling the property. But 
just be aware that if you do it on an often basis, you know, you could be up for this liabilities, particularly if your home's growing strongly tax-free. Um, yeah, and, and, and with all the expenses that come out and how much cash you actually end up with. Yeah. Um, and then you've got to look at, you know, us boring tax nerds, right? We, we need to get this right for you. So if you've rented out a part of your home, we have to say, okay, well, there is the things that are developed like directly for that part of the home, some furniture, you know, those sorts of things. Then you've got to go and figure out, you know, if you've got professional photography for the listing, you know, that's deductible against it. Um, then you've got to look at repairs and maintenance. Is it for that part of the house? Is it not? Um, power bills. Okay, now we need to figure out floor space and apportion power bills based on the percentage of the house, then the percentage of time that you used it. It can just get costly, mm. you know. Um, it's really good if you need a little bit of cash. Um, but generally speaking, looking at it, on a long-term basis, there's not a heap of value of just doing little bits of renting out your home. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, um, yeah, we are seeing that more and more often where people, you know, they can make some decent money on Airbnb. Um, yeah. And, you know, but then you really got to weigh up. The after-tax benefit, how much is it really? Yeah. You know, the whole hassle to get That's that. That's the effort. And then they're organising your tax. Yeah. And then is that all going to then be wiped out by... If your house grows strongly over that year, you could lose that in in a, in a capital gains tax liability in the future. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. really think it through. It's, it's not as easy as it sounds to um, no. have a cake and eat it. I mean, um, a lot of people don't really understand the the deductibility of loans. I, you know, a lot of people think, um, oh, I can't. Uh, I've got a loan against my house, uh, and I bought some shares with it. That's not deductible because it's secured by my house. Or you know, yeah. I can just move my debt from my home to my investment property and that means it'll be deductible. And can you sort no. of explain where, you know, I guess the thought process between what makes a loan deductible or not yeah. and, um, you know, and some of the mistakes because you know, people do get into these problems with debt washing and joining all their debts together and yeah. um, it becomes yeah, a real do. nightmare down the line. Yeah. So so the first thing sort of around that is is how how you figure out whether it's deductible or not. And that's what the money was used for, not what it's secured against. So your example there of buying a share portfolio, um, you bought a house, you paid down some debt, you had some equity, you redrew it. That redrawn portion, so let's just make up some figures. You had a, a $500,000 debt. You took $100,000 out. Um, so you, had, you got it down to $400,000. You took $100,000 out. You back up to $500,000. Now, 20% of it has been taken out to buy shares. 20% of your interest is now tax deductible. Right. So that's the first thing, the intent. Now, where tax accountants become really helpful here is how to ensure that you get the majority of your debt that is humanly possible as tax deductible. So if you are going to be having an offset account, then my recommendation is always just put the money to the offset account, never to the loan because that gives you options at a decision point. Okay, so what can happen, and I'll just run through two scenarios. Um, you've been building up your offset account, you've got some money, um, and you want to go buy a new house to live in. You go, I'm upgrading. Now, you take that money from the offset account and use it to buy the new home. The original loan is still high. So now you're gonna rent out the original home and it's got more interest, okay? So you can see there where by not putting it in and redrawing it, you've got a benefit, okay? Then, yeah, so 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 
making sure you get your timing right on that and giving options is what's really, really important around offset accounts. So yeah. my, my piece of advice to clients is always only make your minimum loan repayments, you know, and then before making any decision, give us a call and we'll find out the way to make as much of your loans as possible tax deductible. Yeah, it's a really big point, this. Um, so a lot of first-time buyers make this mistake. They they do the right thing. They, they buy a they property. Yeah. They get a loan. Maybe they borrow at 80% or maybe they pay lenders mortgage insurance, which I'll ask you a question on in a second. But um, And then they do the right thing. They knuck a bad debt. That is bad. They get their parents in their yeah. ear and they just knuckle down and they smash that mortgage down. And they buy a good asset and that goes up in value. So they build heaps of equity in their first apartment. Yeah. Um but that you're right, they didn't use the offset account. They just reduced the loan balance. And, um, yeah. you know, then they come to us three, five years later. Oh, you know what? We've had a couple of kids. We need to upgrade from this apartment into a house. And But it's a really good investment. It's done really well from, yeah, it's growing tax-free, but they really want to keep it. But there's yeah. just no real um, advantage to keep it because they've paid off that loan so much that if they do upgrade, they're going to have a huge debt on their new home. That's yeah. not deductible. And, yeah. you know, from a tax cash flow point of view, when you do the numbers, it really just makes sense to sell the apartment. Whereas if you listen to what George was saying there, if they just did the same thing, but instead of paying down the loan, just put money in the offset account, they would have kept that debt high and then yeah. had the, the chance of keeping that apartment as an investment property. And it's a it's a big mistake I, I see people yeah. make. Um yeah, that, that's, that's one of the key ones. And, and there's one other, Chris, that I see quite often is, and, and it's going to be so relevant now with rising interest rates, mm. um, they wait to their tax return to get a refund when they're negatively geared. So the time value of money is super important. Um, you're paying these interest rates at 6%. You can, if you're going to get a negative a tax return, you're going to get a tax return because of negative gearing, you can change your weekly, monthly, quarterly, however often you get paid, you can change the amount of tax that's withheld at that point. So you're getting that refund instead of, you know, three months after the tax year's ended, as you go. And my belief, George, that's quite easy, isn't it? Well, how do, how do people do that? Um, so it's a pay-as-you-go withholding variation form. Um, it, it can be a little painful. Uh, the actual form itself, we do it for a bunch of people um, because it is painful, but... Basically, that gets lodged with the ATO. The ATO then contacts your employer and says, hey, you're, you're meant to withhold at this rate based on this, but because of what we know, you can withhold less. That might mean $50, $100, $200 more in your paycheck, and that just goes directly against your offset account if you don't need the money. Um, and then that is reducing your interest, which, you know, we all know the compounding effects of that over the 20 years of the loan is huge. It's a good point, yeah. So if someone has got a, a decent um, negative cost, you know, a big deduction with an investment property or something like that. I mean, if it's positive cash flow, this won't help you, right? But if no. it's if it's a negative cash flow property, and particularly, uh, George is saying, under higher interest rate, which a lot of people are feeling right yeah. now, um, get this uh, variation done. Instead of getting this big tax deduction in July or August or September, whenever you lodge your tax return, get it throughout the year. Yeah. Get that money in your offset account. Save that interest. Um which is, is a lot of money, right, under 6 7% interest rates. When, That's huge. You know, um, and so it's a double win. You, you say you're, you're getting that money today, but you're also offsetting your debt rather than just sitting on the ATO's balance sheet um, yeah. and making them some money. So that's some really good advice. And, um, and it's the really boring accountant thing of looking over 20 years of the impact that has, mm. you know, the compounding effect of not having to pay that interest and they're not paying interest on the interest, you know, like it is huge. George, what's some deductions do you think that people – 
you know, you, you, they come to you and you sort of do a bit of an order on the tax return and said, oh, no, you can't miss that one. Or actually they did their own tax. They missed that yeah. one. Um, I mean, borrowing expenses is something that, you know, easily can be forgotten about. They paid yep. lenders mortgage insurance. Um, yep, LMI. You know, yep. yeah, and uh, you know, that's deductible over five years. Is that correct? Like mm -hmm. um, if, if it yep. was an investment property, if, if it was, you know, not it's, a home. Yeah. Um, what are some other things that you sort of see people? We, we've touched on the depreciation yep. and quantity surveys report. That's probably the most common one. Yeah. Um, the apportionment of the interest we talked about is quite often another one. Mm. Um, the lender's mortgage insurance. Um, and then the out-of-pockets, like people quite often get so busy in their life, they have an agent looking after this and they get the agent statement and they send it and go, this is what it cost me. Mm. And you go, are you sure you didn't have this, this or this? You know, was there anything else, you know, um, and, and just general uh, landlord insurance, you know, quite often that's paid personally by the owner rather than the managing agent. So, you know, we'll quite often go back and they're like, oh, yeah, I think I did pay that. They'll find it. That's an extra $1,000, $1,500 deduction. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so it's quite often the personally paid things when you have an agent managing the property. Yeah, things like land tax, right? Um, land tax. Know. Hopefully, if it's your first property, we can avoid land tax. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I actually find that one stings enough that people remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But it's good. You can get tax deduction on paying tax. That's always a nice thing. Um, yeah. The uh, I mean, I think there's some really good points there about just keeping really good records. I mean, I actually, you know, even if it's something. I've had to arrange for a property. I'll just say to the um, agency just to pay it for me, just so it goes on their records and so you don't forget about it. But, yeah. um, you know, if not, all have separate bank accounts that you only pay things for the properties, offset accounts linked to your properties. I think it's a keep it really clean then you don't forget things rather than paying on yeah. your personal credit card and yeah. it all gets too messy. You um, go chasing the points. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then you've forgotten about you've missed out on all these tax deductions. So. Yeah, you, you had an emergency plumber come out one night. You did it at 11 p.m. You threw it on the credit card. Yeah, It's it's 12 months later you're doing your tax return. Yeah. You just don't remember it. You don't remember it. That's right. Um, so, I mean, I guess um, some really good points there around, uh, you know, the borrowing costs. I mean, buyer's agents is, a, is another purchase cost. What's your take? I've, I've, different accounts said different things this in the past. I mean, if they use a buyer's agent to purchase a pro an investment property, what's your thoughts around the deductibility of their costs? Um, it can be clever. You know, this is the only way to describe it. You've got to make sure that the purpose uh, based on the invoice was correct to make it as deductible. So we talk to people uh, about that before before that process happens. Mm. Um, but on a higher level around buyer's agency, just a personal observation is worth their weight in gold. Okay. Um, from from watching what my clients have done, the, the way they've transacted, the deals they've got, um, the support and negotiation, I've found it to be really, really powerful, really powerful. I think that's good, George, because what that does is that's a, a good independent voice they're backing buyer's agents, right? Yeah. So George yeah. isn't um, you know, a buyer's agent, right? So you're not just pumping the tires of buyer's agents. No. I, we, we get the same experience. So we work a lot with lots of different buyer's agents all over the country. And um, even today, I've got to talk to a client about using a buyer's agent, the value yeah. proposition. And um, we see it because we see lots of transactions, but a lot of uh, first home buyers or upgraders say, so it's a service that's very intangible. It's very hard to know what the value is, and people are very skeptical. It is a very high cost service as well. Um, yeah. But you know, I guess picking the right buyers agent is the hard part here, George. Right? It, it you, is. It's, it's like anything. You know, yeah. there's a lot of lot of people out there that aren't doing a great job. 
yeah. um, but finding the good ones are worth and and the, the investment property complete no-brainer um, then you go buying your own home people go oh well, I want to do all this research myself because I know what I like you know I know what I want um, which is true like there, there's definitely that element you'll be much much more involved than the buyer's agent is if it's your own home but don't forget like if you're talking about a significant investment the negotiation alone pays the fee mm. You know, like the, the, the skill and experience of dealing with real estate agents and helping the negotiation side pays for its own fee. So from that point alone, and then you actually get the extra support of everything else a buyer's agent does on top. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a very emotional uh, time buying properties and yeah. you might think you're a great negotiator, but you're not compared to a real estate agent that does it. That's their of job. Transactions a year. Um, you can very quickly... I'm, I'm not great at it, to be honest. Um, yeah. And the buyer's agents just tell me to shut up because they <laughs> I talk too much. So um, it's, it's a really good point there around buyer's agency. I mean, around sort of um, tax and, uh, you know, things to sort of be concerned around, um, you know, with superannuation, I mean, the, there's a lot of people that come and want to leverage super into residential property. Um, yeah. I mean, commercial is a different kettle of fish. I mean, what's your take on, um, using SMSF and going into you know limited limited recourse borrowing arranges and leveraging people's super like what's your experience and what you've seen people do and how it's performed? Well, the the Australian property juggernaut keeps rolling on, right? That the, the the only time it's going to go south is if the property stops rolling the way it does, mm. uh, because the the big consideration there, well, not the big one of the big considerations is your interest rate's going to be higher borrowing with an SMSF than it is if you borrow in your personal name. Now, there are some strategies you can use to borrow in your personal name, lend that to the super fund and receive interest, but you need to have certain equity and different different situations going on to make that work. So that, that's one way of managing the interest rate. Yeah. Um, I've seen some people be really, really successful. We have a whole bunch of, we have a self-managed super fund department. I've seen some people be really, really successful with it. One thing I think Australia is property mad um, and, you know, this is a property podcast, so I shouldn't say it, but you've got to make sure you've got balance in your life. You yeah. And if, you, if you're if you very, very heavily balanced towards property in your personal life, do you also want to move that super into property as well? Now, your answer can be yes. I have plenty of clients that do, right? And that's a personal decision. Uh, but it's a consideration you should have. Have yep. I seen it be successful for people? Yes, I've seen it be very successful for people being able to gear their super to get, you know, a significant return there. Yeah, so I think it's a... Really good point, right? People are very leveraged in their home, investment properties. Um, you know, they might have a business and commercial property, et cetera, and they've got nothing. The only thing they've got outside of property is their super fund, and then yeah. they go and put that in property as well. And, yeah. um, the diversification in their life is almost zero. Um, and if you believe in property, there's no issue with that. Yeah. Do you find it's usually the bigger balances and people, you know, leveraging a, on a higher end that have done well? Um Rather than people with smaller balance in self-managed super funds and buying resi properties, you know the type of properties they have to buy and the the risks and things like that. You've seen some people have blown their supers up and things like that. I've never seen anybody blow it up because the property prices have just been going up nicely. Yeah, um, and I'd actually say it's the opposite. I see it's mostly the lower balances, um, the the high net worths. We have a bunch of high net worths are diversified. Mm. You know, like so so they don't necessarily need their property in the super funds. Mm. Um, with the high net worth also what I see is quite often they're running a business and they will have their business premises in the self-managed super fund. Yeah. So that could be a barrister, a farmer, you know, uh, an accountant. I don't, but an accountant could have this office in the 
self-managed super fund and be paying themselves rent, you know, um, getting the tax benefits of paying the rent in the business at the business tax rate and only paying 15% tax in the um, in the self-managed super fund. Look, I, I do find that people look forward and the, the reason I think they really like property in self-managed super funds is they look forward and go, okay, well, if I can gear it, I should get this greater return um, compared to, you know, an ungeared investment in, you know, Australian super or someone. Yeah. Um, so for them, it is genuinely about trying to maximise what they have at retirement. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's a, it. Sounds like you haven't seen too much of the the poor property decisions. Um, Core Logic um, sort of released an, a quarterly, I think it is, yeah. gain and gain report, and yeah. was, that really shows the tale of two investors. The you know the 40, 50, 60 percent of investors that maybe buy apartments or buy in Darwin or Perth or yeah. you know and have had some really bad outcomes, and then you've got the other ones that have you know maybe bought houses in good areas and and have done really well. And yeah. uh, my advice would be if you are looking to leverage your super, just be really you really need to understand what's a good asset because you are punting your your super. And um, we've absolutely seen you know there's a lot of firms out there that push people down the off the plan sector, things like that, and yeah. um, you know that's stitching up their super funds, I guess. So. No, and, and, and maybe it's also our clients are maybe a little bit more thoughtful yeah. Um, and they don't go in with super low balances. Yeah. You know, like we, we don't give super advice. We just do the compliance part, but we are always very uncomfortable if someone comes with a very low balance um, and it's like I'm buying a house. Yeah. George, you've done, seen you've got a lot of people uh, from the small businesses, $100 million plus businesses, right, and probably even yeah. things on the ASX. You've probably got seen and you've got families that are, you know, at all different elements of wealth. Yeah. The bigger ones that have... Now, what, what do you think they've done really well from a tax point of view um, that have really catapulted their wealth over compounding over many generations? Yeah, I mean, compounding's the key word, right? Compounding's right. Um, they quite often have taken some form of risk early. So whether that's starting a business or making investment, um, and they've done it in a smart way. They haven't just been like, I need to take a risk, where's a risk, let me take it. They've looked at something on this. This seems an abnormal return. Um, and they've got, but once they've done that, they don't chase the risk again. They don't chase the risk again. Mm. You know, they then slow their risk profile down. Um, especially, you know, when you're young, you can take a risk and you can bounce back if it goes wrong. Um, as you get older, you probably don't want to be taking those risks. Mm. Um, I, I once had a client in their seventies take a huge risk and go bankrupt. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that's a very tough conversation because, you know, where do you go from there? Yeah. Um, so, so they, they then dial it back. They, they start to just consolidate, uh, but they've done all the little things along the way, so they're engaged with it. They've thought, you know, we talked before about a pay-as-you-go withholding variation. That's a 20-year benefit, you know. They've yeah. looked at that and gone, okay, yeah, it is a little bit of a pain. You know, it is going to take me an hour to a year to do, but they can see the long-term impact of it, mm. yeah. Um, so it's all about having an idea of and a plan also. So quite often the ones that I've seen successful have had a bit of a plan. You know, they've tried to project things out a little bit further and gone, okay, well, um, I will sit down with, you know, a professional advisor and go, okay, what's this look like in the future? Yeah. Rather than just deal with I want this now, it, it, I guess it's a more thoughtful approach. It makes a lot of sense. I love the, um, you're right, they've taken their risk early, for example. That's got them ahead and they realise that they've got themselves to a strong position now, so let's not just risk it. Um, no. We see, um, you're right, as people get older, their risk profile naturally re decreases, right? They yeah. just, they, their appetite for 
you know, you don't jump off, uh, you know, cliffs when you're, you know, yeah, in the yeah, 50s, yeah. 60s, right? You don't yeah. um, take up extreme sports. So people naturally get more conservative. Um, I do find people do get maybe sometimes too conservative. Um, oh, 100%. 40s, 50s, they, they've almost got it too easy and they, they don't realise there's a longevity risk or a running out yeah. of money risk. And yeah. so you, you've got to be careful about too risky. It does make sense to reduce risk. Um and then you know, making the small tweaks per year in compounding, I think that's a yeah. that's a key point. Um, you know, have you seen them do really well out of you know their homes and growing tax free and making really? Do you think that's the the biggest opportunity? Sometimes people, you know, maybe just buy a house that suits them, but they sort of forget that it's also their, one of the biggest opportunities because it grows tax free. Oh, hundred percent! Like a, a main residence is incredible. It's incredible. Nowhere else really do you get to sit there and make money and not pay tax on it. Mm. Like, you yeah. know, super funds maybe a little bit, but it is incredible that you can do this. Now, where the balance lies is getting your your positioning that that is making you money and not costing you money whilst you hold it. So, you know, the holding costs are sustainable. Um, what I see a lot of people do is they go really heavy on their first home, their, their forever home. Uh, and that's driven by stamp duty legislation and a bunch of things, but they go very hard on it. Mm. And it means they've just spent 40 years, 30 years grinding that loan right on the edge of their cash flow. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it's sad to see because you get 30 years down the track, you're, f you're busted, you know, mm. you're yeah. exhausted. So trying to not get carried away in that first one, mm. you know, good home. Don't get me wrong, as you know, a good percent, but don't go everything. Don't go everything on your home because that's the same people who interest rates have gone up and are now looking to turn over their homes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, you know, if you are doing it, be really confident on your trajectory of income, your future cash flow, not yeah. you're on your peak of your earning cycle or you're going to go into, yeah. you know, the baby stage and um, you haven't got any buffers left over or you buy a house that needs a lot of work. And Yeah. yeah I, and think I, it's, and I guess the yeah. other thing I'm not sure if you talk about is when you get to that point and go, I have gone in, I am in trouble, what happens if one income drops out? Yeah. You know, and do I protect that? Do I get income protection insurance? Um, the conversation I quite have often around babies and marital. Yeah. And, and the two things that are really important to think about outside of it is wills and insurance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what happens if someone passes away? Really, really important question. So if you've got this big debt, then you probably should have some, um, you know, TPD insurance and have that reviewed, not just, oh, I've got some in my super fund. Have it reviewed because I've seen the super fund ones go really wrong. George, I love that. What's what you're talking about here? Because what you're demonstrating, uh, hopefully our listeners are picking up on this, is George being a trusted advisor here, right? George could just think, oh, I'm just going to look after my clients from a tax point of view. But what you're, you're preempting is issues that they may not have considered as important as they really are. Yeah. And you're highlighting that they need to go sort them out. George probably won't get paid at it, making sure someone gets no. their insurance, but he sees it as a risk. And, you know, this is what a true trusted advisor does. They, they, they educate on all the elements of someone's life um, and then bring in experts when they need it. And so um, yeah. the only final point I want to end on today George, because something I'm just noticing a lot with our clients and we're seeing deposits um, and not everyone's fortunate, right, but we're mm. seeing deposits come down from intergenerational wealth, particularly in the Sydney market, um, that are astron astronomical, to be honest. Um, yeah. We're seeing the biggest deposit I've ever seen when it's coming from grandparents to parents to kids. Um, yeah. 
And, um, you know, I don't know if it's about this super change. I don't know what's what's this, you know, catalyst where people are just willing to give away a lot of part of their wealth down. Um, yeah. What are you seeing, George, around in terms of the older generations and, and helping out the younger generations entering the property market? Because that's been one of the biggest supports for prices and I'd love to know what you're seeing. Yeah, look, we're seeing lots of it. And, you know, we have some high net worths here and the amounts you're talking about, we're talking millions yeah. um, to, to, to gifted. Um, the first thing, I'll actually flip this slightly. The first piece of advice goes to the people giving the money. Get it secured. So basically what we recommend to clients is you're giving um, to your son or daughter and their spouse to buy their, you know, forever home, to use the word. Um, take out a loan uh, against that giving that money in. So what it does is you don't you don't get any interest, you can forgive the loan later, but it protects you from a separation. You know, you need to protect your money because it is your money you're giving away. So at the end of the day, you gave a million dollars, and we'll say someone was really generous, gave a million dollars, they bought a million dollar house, um, the house is now worth $2 million and the, the couple decide to split, okay? Now, they're going, okay, well, that's a million dollars each. And, and the parents are going, hold on, I put a million dollars into this. So it gives you the ability to pull your million dollar back first before assets are split. So I think from a family protection point of view, that's really, really important. Some people will be really uncomfortable with that conversation, um, but probably worth having. Um, but yeah, on the other side, on the positive side, we are seeing money coming in. We're allowing people to go and get into homes that they would not otherwise be able to access. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there is superannuation law changes, a bunch of things that I think it's demographics. Okay. Yeah. There, there is just getting to a certain point in our society where there is a large amount of older, wealthy, you know, to use the term boomers. Um, and they are getting to a point where their kids need support because the property prices have gone up so much and wages haven't been in line with that. So, the, you know, the proverbial bank of mum and dad is, is probably got more cash than ever. The other thing is, People have got interest rates that are super high now. Um, the people who have money through this period of interest rate rises are making more money than ever. Yeah, yeah. So there's more to go around. That's a good, really good second point. I hadn't thought too much. There's been a recent boom in prices as well. Stock markets are holding up, and yep. um, that's you know, so their wealth positions increased a lot in the last couple of years as well. So they, you know, they feel very comfortable, way yeah. more comfortable than they have in the past. And then you're right; they're getting a, a decent return on their cash and. They're almost like printing money and, you know, mm. they've got their kids who have now potentially got their grandkids um, yeah. coming into the world and they're like, well, oh, we can't get a house. We're going to have to leave Sydney. Yeah, Their only options, they want to see the grandkids, they've got to keep yeah. their kids in Sydney and I think yeah. that's what we're seeing and um, it's astronomical to be honest. I think it's just one of those uh, tectonic plates um, yeah. because when you look at the the boomers, this is really just the start of it, you know, the, the property so. market's worth roughly 10 trillion there's two trillion of debt there's so much equity that yeah. is getting passed down and multiplied and um and uh i i hadn't really seen it to be honest till the yeah. last 12 18 months we, obviously it was occasional but it, it's pretty big bit of a longer episode than normal but um there was so much i wanted to chat to you about george so thanks so much for coming on um i really appreciate it if people want to hear more about you is it uh pp.tax is that the That's best the one yeah yep. It's a very good uh, little website, that nice yeah. and easy to, to talk about. Um, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, if you want to know more about our business, Mortgage Broking, obviously there's a link in the show notes. You're more than welcome. Um, and all the resources for other um, crew on the podcast. And thanks for tuning in. And um, we'll see you all next time. Thanks for having me, Chris.
Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.